Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. So there's this house, a mansion, really. It's in Laval about a half-hour drive from downtown Montreal. And it is gorgeous. Uh, Waterfront property, five bedrooms, swimming pool, walk-in wine cellar. It sold recently for over $4 million cash. The buyer did not take a mortgage. Didn't even sell their old house. Rich people exist. That's fine. But what's weird about these rich people is that, A, the husband of this couple is employed not as, like, a tech founder or a hedge fund guy, but as a senator. And B, he's not a Canadian senator. Roni Celestin is a senator in Haiti, where he lives, and where more than half of the population lives in extreme poverty, on under $2.5 a day. Haiti has been in the news again. Things are not good. A new crisis in Haiti. First, opposition leaders demanded the president step down at the end of his term on Sunday. The president responded by ordering police to arrest 23 people, including a Supreme Court judge. Clashes between protesters and the police have been ongoing in Haiti for the past weeks. The Caribbean nation is also dealing with widespread gang violence. Dictature. 
Look, I want to be honest with you. What I know about Haiti can be boiled down to a handful of news tropes. The phrase, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, is one that I can pull out if necessary. Uh, basket case republic, pseudo-democracy, failed state. What else? Turmoil, unrest, volatile. If I had to, I have those words to fake my way through this topic without really knowing what I'm talking about. So when I read in the news that the legitimacy of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moise, is being questioned, and that there is volatile unrest on the streets of Port-au-Prince, I am being informed, yes, but paradoxically, I'm also having my ignorance reassured. No need to learn more, I suppose, because what little I know, you know, that basket of tropes, has just been confirmed. It's like when I found out that Haiti's last president is also a recording artist known as Sweet Mickey. Yep, I guess that sounds like Haiti. It's similarly amusing, but unsurprising, to read in the news that Haiti's ruling class is suspiciously buying up luxury property here in Canada. But here's something I've never really thought about. Where might the money for that mansion in Laval have come from? So basically what Venezuela did is that they sold um, um, petrol to different countries, particularly in the Caribbean and Latin America, uh, at very low rates. And part of that money was supposed to be a loan to the country that would go directly into a development funds. So in Haiti, $4.3 billion of dollars were part of that funds that were uh, bought by the Petro-Caribe agreement. And that money that was supposed to go towards development went into foolishness. It went into rubbish projects, and it was um, the biggest financial scandal of, in Haiti's history. That's Valina Elysee-Charlier, an activist based in Haiti. Now, there is no specific allegation that the money for that senator's new Laval home came from the Petro-Caribe funds. What is known is that other prominent Haitian politicians, many from the same ruling party, have been implicated in that corruption scandal. Um, the money was clearly stolen, and the current president, Jovenel Moïse, had a company named Agritrans, who is uh, in the report, the court of auditor said that they were involved into a stratagem to move funds around, you know, to steal money. The current president term ended on February 7th of this year. Now, we as Haitian are telling him that his term has ended and he must leave power. And the entire country is asking him to leave power because he's a president that's corrupted, is um, heavily involved in many massacres that happened in the country, is been ruling by decree for the past year or so. There have been 11 massacres carried out by gangs in the last two years, she tells me. In one of them, at least 70 people, including children and women, were killed. This violence is widely thought to be connected to Moise's government and other members of the political and business class. And Valina knows about the kidnappings directly. Her husband is a filmmaker. His crew 
was just kidnapped. They are being kidnapped by the second, and they're asking for ransoms that are as high as um, $10 million, $3 million. Me, myself, talking to you just last week, we had three of our employees that were kidnapped in Haiti. Um, my husband co-owns a film company, and they're, they're shooting their second um, um, movie. And when we were coming back from uh, the countryside where we were shooting, three of our employees were kidnapped. Two Dominican citizens uh, and one Haitian were kidnapped. They spent um, five days with the kidnappers and then another three days with the police before we were able to, to have them released. This is how Haiti is. We have a lot of um, illegal guns trafficking that are coming into our ports, coming straight from the United States of America. It became an unlivable place. So the protests are not only against dictatorship, they are also against kidnapping, they are against impunity, and they are against insecurity. The protesters say Jovenel Moise's term as president ended on February 7th. He says he has another year in office, and he is promising to organize elections. Velina and those marching don't trust him. You know, we are Democrats in Haiti, and uh, most of the groups, the activist group, the civil society groups, we are all uh, Democrats. So, of course, we value and we want election. What we are saying is that no fair and honest election can happen for as long as Jovenel Moïse remains in power. So for us, for free and fair and honest election to happen, we would need to see a transitional government, one that would give um, citizens faith back into elections. Now, it's easy enough for me to mentally file these troubles away as stuff happening elsewhere. But a lot of Canadians do not have that luxury. There are 165,000 members of the Haitian diaspora in Canada, most of them in Montreal. Velina grew up here a bit herself, so she wasn't surprised to learn that a Haitian senator's wife parked millions of dollars in Canada. I was partly raised in, in Montreal and uh, in Outremont, in the neighborhood of Outremont, many of the Tonton Macout or the people that were working with the Duvalier, they came and bought houses in Outremont and paid them cash. So it is historically that um, Canada, especially in the immobilier sector, it, that they, they, they have been welcoming money that us in Haiti, we call uh, bad money, money that was not made honestly, money that's probably made from corruption. So honestly, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that the same thing is happening again. Well, one Canadian with Haitian roots is my colleague, Emily Nicolas, Canada Land's new French media correspondent. And today she's going to help me get past that handful of news tropes so that I might understand what the conflict in Haiti means to her. I'm going to find out what role Canada plays in that conflict and what impact those easy media cliches have on people who have no choice but to hope that maybe things could actually change in Haiti. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Caitlin Oakham, Amanda Main, Thomas Eady, Kata Law, Dalen Cochran, Shauna Quinton, Danielle Weber, and Diane. Hi, I'm Diane, and I support Canada Land because it is a desperately needed antidote 
to the desert that is independent news in Canada. And I just think that that's an antidote worth paying for. Hi, Emily. Hi, Jesse. Who is Senator Ronnie Celestine? Who he is doesn't matter that much. Uh, he's a senator. Uh, that's the important piece of information there. He's part of the political party that the president of Haiti is a part of. His wife just bought a house in Laval for more than $4 million, uh, and people have questions. What do senators get paid in Haiti? Uh, not $4 million. Let's put it this way. <laughs> I think the issue is, I mean, what's scandalous? It's, you know, this amount of wealth, I think, is scandalous everywhere. But the amount of people who live in poverty in Haiti makes it even more just grotesque. And the issue is that there's been a lot of people questioning for many years uh, corruption of the Haitian political elite. Uh, one of the key issues with that has been people asking, there's even an hashtag for it, uh, where the money for the Petro Bay fund went. So basically a lot of money that came from Venezuela. There's also a lot of money that came in Haiti uh, from different funds in terms of uh, earthquake relief. So the earthquake that happened in 2010. And so a lot of money has been poured in in the country in the last 10 years. And there's been very little results on the ground in terms of, you know, seeing the improvements, seeing the projects that people promise actually take place. And so what's happening is that people have been raising questions in terms of where did the money go? When you see the political caste getting wealthy and wealthy, not even hiding their wealth, then a lot of people go to the streets and call out basically uh, the Haitian government and its allies and its friends for spending the money on themselves rather than actually, uh, you know, helping the people. Just to get my head around, like, just the specific issue of this of this house, she puts down a 100% down payment, no mortgage, for this waterside property in Laval. $4 million, four and a quarter. They are claiming the family has a successful business. There's nothing uh, corrupt about this. There's reason to ask questions about that. And I guess I'm curious as a Canadian, I could see why the political class would not want to keep their money in Haiti when you've got an uprising. Are we the place to go park that money? And I'm curious about what the large Haitian diaspora in Canada thinks about that. What, what is the response? Is there, is there a division in that community? Or like, are we going to see people coming to that property in Laval? What unites every Haitian that I know is love for this country and uh, will to see it get ahead. Where you see the division is how people want to go about that and also how people are actually informed about what's going on. I think, you know, here in Montreal, there's, of course, Haitians from all walks of life. But I think it's worth noting that most of the people who founded, I guess, the key institutions in the Haitian diaspora in Montreal arrived in context of being political exiles from the dictatorship in the 60s. A dictatorship that was put in place and backed by Canada and the United States, partly because people feared basically that the Cuban revolution would spread to their other islands. So the people that came here were, were very much, you know, lefty-leaning, socialist, even communist uh, uh, you know, Haitians who wanted to do politics differently uh, in a way that was also very much anti-imperialist. 
I just want to say this prevalence of Haitian commies is what makes us so awesome uh, because it's like one of the only immigrant groups that didn't come to Canada with this idea of like the Canadian dream. Canada is so great. It's like people who came here being like, no, we're revolutionary. Canada's trying to impose a dictatorship on us. We see you. <laughs> so it makes for an interesting political tradition uh, in contrast with a lot of other immigrant communities who take a while to kind of like not believe in the Trudeau ideas. They came here and settled in Montreal. Of course, when you see uh, some of the key leaders in the Haitian diaspora, the Haitian Canadian diaspora, you see that analysis of, you know, the U.S. is trying to mingle with our affairs. And actually, they're right. Uh, the U.S. has been trying to mingle with Haitian affairs for a really, really long time. Uh, so has France, actually, since the founding of the country. And uh, because of that, you see that there is a fear of... Uh, foreign intervention. So basically, even if you're trying to fix, uh, for example, democratic crisis in Haiti, if it's done from the outside, if it's Canada, France, US, OAS coming in, trying to fix Haitian democracy, it does not work because what people want is sovereignty. And so the minute it's foreigner coming in, trying to you know, take over and solve an issue for you, it actually increases the, the crisis of trust in the government. That's one thing. And then the other thing is that there's always been as well uh, since the founding of Haiti, a crisis of trust uh, in the Haitian elites. Some of that comes from just how diverse actually Haitians were at the very start of independence. Some of them were descended from slaves. Some of them were people who were actually of mixed background, who had, you know, French roots as well, who were very much focused on trying to get an education in France and being like wannabe French. And so that kind of like inner colonization of a part of the Haitian elites make that elite sometimes not exactly work in the interests of the people. And so that's been also an going issue. So what we're seeing right now is a mix of those two things, people not trusting uh, anything that has to do with international intervention for really good reasons, and then also people being very careful about their elites for also very good reasons. But sometimes when you look at specific case, you don't necessarily always have, you know, the proof of that. So sometimes uh, when you listen to people, you know, talking about, well, this politician is corrupt, this is where they got their money. In terms of Canadian journalism, you don't necessarily see, okay, so how, where, where's the paper trail, right? But at the same time, most of the time they're right because people, you know, know how to, first of all, hide their paper trails, the institutions that you would go for, uh, go to here to kind of like prove things are themselves uh, part of the corruption system. And so it's really hard to have like that key objective information. So Emily, this this sort of local mini scandal around this piece of property, it's playing out against a backdrop of, uh, I guess, as we say in news, unrest in Haiti, you know, as the headlines evolve, political crisis in Haiti. Can you orient me with that? So basically, the Haitian government is arguing that it has one one more year left to its term. A lot of the Haitian civil society and law experts are saying it does not. So basically, some people say he should be uh, leaving now. Some people say the Haitian president should be leaving in a year. Because of that, there's been a lot of protests in the streets, especially since February, when his term was finally uh, over in the eyes of many. But beyond that, whether or not the election is now or the election is in the year, there's also a lot of questions in terms of whether or not that election would go on in a way that would you know, bring back the trust of the people into the election cycle. There's been political unrest in Haiti for a while now, for, for several years. The Haitian dictatorship of like the Duvalier regime that my father fled fell at the, at the end of the 80s, like a lot of dictatorship around the world, around the, the end of the Cold War. And so 
With that, there was a new Haitian constitution that was draft and trying to move the country to democracy. And it has somewhat worked for a while, but it was always, you know, complicated. And uh, in the 2000s, what we've seen is that there's been more and more international uh, influence on the political, uh, the, the electoral cycle locally. And so what you see is that the Haitian people who actually believe that the election is fair decreases with every election cycle. And that in itself makes the election more fragile. And so it's, it's kind of a vicious circle, uh, which allows for even more foreign intervention to happen. In 2010, what you've seen is the OAS, so the Organization of the American States, uh, doing its own basically electoral ex- uh, observation mission and using a quick count. And that quick count, you know, influencing who actually got elected at the end of the day. So that, that was part of how Michel Martelly, who the founder of the party that is still ruling, got elected. Last election cycle, 2016, 2017, you had uh, some some of that legislative election that had to be done over because there was uh, a lot of uh, issues on the ground in terms of ir- irregularities and also even violence in some regions. And so there is also not necessarily a lot of trust that if an election would be called now, that this election would necessarily take place in a way that people would trust the process and actually participate. There is the equivalent basically of Election Canada in Haiti Uh, It's called the Provisory Electoral Council, and it's provisory because the way that it's set up in the Constitution is not necessarily applicable. So imagine if Election Canada, uh, the people who get to sit on that, were being politically negotiated every time we have an election. And so that also becomes an issue because every time there's an election, people then say, well, we don't trust the person who are, the people who are running it, maybe they're corrupted, maybe they're part of the regime, maybe they're this and maybe there's that. And so it, it breeds basically uh, a system where every time an opposition party is not happy with the results, it basically says that the election process is not fair. And a lot of the time they're right, uh, and a lot of the time it's also there's some aspects of political rhetoric there. And so it's uh, distrust, you know, breeds distrust. And at the end of the day, that's a really key issue that I think is important, you know, noting is that people are calling for for uh, President Jovenel Moïse to step down and for an election to be called because his term is over. And that is great. But I think the other question is if an election would be called, you know, how well would it go? And would that actually solve anything is another question there. And so I think probably there's a sense as well from the international community that's trying to keep Jeanelle Moïse in, in place. There's a worry that if you do call an election, it's not necessarily going to go well. It might actually worsen the political crisis. And uh, if that's the case, they're going to run into that scenario eventually. But there's a fear that maybe what we're seeing now is actually not the bottom of the well. So a Haitian diaspora in Canada of an estimated 165,000 people, almost all of them in Quebec, I understand, and almost all of those in Montreal at a time of unrest in Haiti where the President Moïse, his his legitimacy is is very much in question. We hear about Haiti in such reductive and simple and and not very flattering terms, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, et cetera, et cetera, and this idea of a failed state, an impoverished country. At the risk of asking you to summarize the entire history of a nation in uh, in just a few moments, do you think you could summarize the history of a nation in just a few moments? (laughs) 
that's a great way to uh, to put it. Uh, yes, I will try. And uh, by doing that, I know that I will say things that lack nuance. So for the Haitians who are listening to me, I know. I know I'm not exactly right on everything. But basically, uh, Haiti became a country in 1804 in the context of Africans who were enslaved, who uh, did an uprising, a successful one, in a context where, you know, French, the British and the Spanish were at war with each other. And so just a mess of Caribbean history. In that context, the Haitian army managed to actually kick out Napoleon's army out of the island, which is why we don't hear a lot about Haitian history. The French are not too proud of this part. And as a result of that, Haiti became the first black republic in a context where most of the countries around them, all of the European empires around them were still uh, slave uh, owners. And so the goal was always to, first of all, isolate Haiti because you don't want to give uh, other black folks bad ideas. The other thing is that uh, as soon as uh, Haiti became independent, France asked for reparation for their loss of property. And that uh, gave basically a debt to France that basically waited on the Haitian economy for most of the 20th century, uh, the, the 19th and the 20th century. So yeah, distrust of foreigners starts with distrust of the French. And then with the Monroe Doctrine, what you see is that the French are now also uh, aided by the Americans who come in and who invaded Puerto Rico successfully. They invaded Cuba, did it successfully for a while. They also invaded Haiti actually successfully for a while at the beginning of the 20th century. And just like trying to annex basically everything that moves in the Caribbean. And so there is that pressure as well. While the United States, of course, you know, is also a very racist country back in those days with segregation and would make sure to send, you know, Americans from the old South who had quote unquote experience dealing with black people to Haiti. And so you can only imagine what the, that context of the contact with uh, Haitians and Americans were at the beginning of the 20th century. And so that distrust of foreigner goes way back. And Canada in that context is just basically the U.S. little friend. I do not remember the last time that Canada disagreed uh, with U.S. policy in Haiti on anything. However, there is this, I guess, perception that Canada is somehow not an imperialist power and that, you know, it acts differently and has a better, I guess, reputation. Underground, the reputation of Canada is actually more complex than that. If you fast forward to now, there's been more and more, since basically the fall of the dictatorship, there's been more and more intervention of those foreign powers in the Haitian election cycle. And you can really see the more uh, international powers get involved in the Haitian electoral cycle, the less the popular participation rates is. And so the more there's a perception that the, the, the system is, is uh, rigged, the less people come in and vote. And because of that, then the election results are less and less perceived as legitimate. If they are not overruled, actually, either by the OAS or by some coup d'etat, I'm not going to go into the details there, but there's been a lot of shenanigans happening since the beginning of the 2000s in terms of Canadian, US, France, OAS involvement in Haitian politics. And so now you have, you know, a result where people don't trust their democracy and the sharks actually use that distrust as a way to rule uh, even more. Our starting point, the story about this multi-million dollar property, that was first reported, I believe, in La Presse. The relationship between Quebec media and the Haitian community in, in Quebec, I'm sure 
is a complicated one. How is this being covered in French language media? I'd say it's being probably covered more uh, than uh, in the rest of the country. There's just a lot of French Canadians who've also been to Haiti, uh, either under the dictatorship in the 70s and the 80s or more recently. You know, whenever there's a Canadian institution involved in Haiti, it's usually the French Canadians who do the most of the work because of language. The Haitian National Police being trained by Quebecois police officers. There's just a whole bunch of relationships there uh, that make it as so that when you f speak to a French Canadian audience, you can assume a little bit more of like general knowledge about what the situation is. Uh, however, there's also a lot of missteps and a lot of sometimes racist stereotypes as well that come back. For example, Quebecor recently had to pull out an article that they had uh, that they had there that said basically there's this plane coming back from Haiti to Montreal that is infested with COVID-19 uh, virus. You know, things like that that are just fueling into the stereotypes that go back to the AIDS crisis, really, that not a lot of people have completely healed from. This idea that Haitians are, you know, just a bunch of issues and, and you know, dirty and all of that. That representation has always been tricky. And so that's why also there's this tradition of Haitians having their own media. There's a lot of talk radio uh, in Montreal that is both in French and Creole that people can listen to on different uh, community radio stations. There's, of course, also a large uh, captured audience of uh, taxi drivers who listen to those radio shows. So there's always an audience there. Uh, plus many other people in the diaspora as well who listen to it. So uh, people have their own kind of side uh, platforms to be able to analyze the context and say hard truths about, you know, what doesn't work in the regime without being feared of those truths being put out of context and used as a weapon of stereotype. And as a journalist, it's difficult because you want to give people the facts about the situation. When you start to tell those stories, you play into cliches about, oh, what a basket case of a country, what a failed state, what a, what a you know, this is not a real democracy. The historical context is helpful to know. Still, what you're left with is describing a country that I think a lot of people just shrug and say, well, it sounds really fucked up there. How do we report on these events in a way that, that reflects the facts but avoids the stereotypes? Uh, I think you reflect on the facts and all the facts, not just the one that fit into that narrative. I think one of the key traps in how we report about Haiti is to paint basically international powers as the source of the solution. And it's something we see a lot in Canada. You know, Canada's got to go out there and save Haiti from itself. While that's kind of the original issue, uh, people coming in and trying to, trying to do that. I think instead, what is more helpful is that when you reported the, the issues, you report also on people who are mobilizing against the issues who are also Haitian themselves. And you show also that there's a civil society that is not standing for it. There's also an issue of demonizing that civil society. For example, if there are people protesting in the streets because they want a democracy, the minute that there is violence, and sometimes there is absolutely violence, people are desperate and hungry. But when the minute there is violence, it's it's painted as, you know, a riot and, you know, a language that is very much about basically making those protests illegitimate. And it comes from the influence, I'd say, of American politics, basically saying uh, Black people marching as a security issue rather than a democratic issue. When it comes to Haiti, there's just this narrative that's out there often that it's just, you know, unruly mob. And there's not often even an interest in trying to figure out what are those people are actually saying uh, and actually take that message seriously. So what is the way out? And, and, and do those who are protesting have a clear idea about that? Moise, uh, you know, got in through an election that is being challenged. 
who's to say that his replacement you know won't face those similar accusations is there kind of an idea of of how this gets resolved i think if you were to resolve everything you would need to address uh you know the issue of uh corruption the issue of uh international powers mingling with uh internal democracy uh you would have to resolve the issue of the role of the diaspora as well in haitian politics uh both us in montreal uh or canada generally and those of us who are in new york and miami actually there's a whole lot of questions in terms of how much we're Haitian or not <laughs> politically, how much we should vote or not. That's also a really important question given the money as well and how much we're part of the Haitian economy still. So yeah, so there's a whole lot of questions that need to be asked, uh, but to do it in a way that, you know, comes from the grassroots would be would be difficult to do in, in, this, in this context where there's, you know, also an economic crisis and there's been an inflation crisis. The, the, the currency's value has been, has been you know, dwindling. And so there's a lot of different issues to solve at the same time. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it would take everybody coming together uh, in good faith. And there's a lot of folks who think that they're helping, e.g. Canada, France, U.S., who need to really think twice about their role in this and how they're going to behave from now on in this, uh, in this country. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. There's one last thing I want to get into before we're done today. Because the danger with an exercise like this, I, I worry, is, is that we have kind of an inflated idea about the value of our own awareness. Like it's some great favor to the world if a person like me shows some curiosity and raises my awareness. 
That's nice for me, but what good does it do for anyone else? For that matter, what should we do? Beyond disabusing ourselves of easy stereotypes. And how is the media supposed to get the facts across when reporting on Haiti without once again perpetuating those stereotypes? Well, I spoke to somebody about that. Jean-Jafrakaiti Saint-Ville, who works at McGill University as a special advisor to the vice principal, Research and Innovation, but who spoke with me as an activist with Solidarité Québec Haiti. He has signed an open letter initiated by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute decrying the Canadian government's support of Jovenel Moïse. I talked to Jean about all of this stuff, but the part that I want to leave you with is this part here, when he talked about why he's even bothered to talk with me about Haiti. By doing this interview, I'm not asking people to, to believe me. I'm asking them to go and Google. I mean, you know, give Haiti five minutes. Uh, you know, beyond the 30 seconds that you no doubt are going to find on CBC where they rehash the same stereotypes, you know, uh, unrest, unruly black people can't rule themselves. Go beyond that. You know, make an effort. And, you know, now the buzzword is Black Lives Matter. Well, I suggest to you Black nationhood matters. And so look beyond the fact that these people are wearing ugly clothes, uh, and etc., and realize that as Albert Einstein taught us and, you know, some of the great researchers in the world, that the human brain is not different from one body to the other, and therefore think that these people must be in the streets for some good reason. And ask yourself, why? Why are they demonstrating like that? And why are there police officers killing them instead of protecting them, as we expect our police officers to be protecting us here? And, and, and go beyond the superficiality. Ask yourself why you never hear some intelligent patients interviewed on CBC Radio Canada. Yet, when there is a crisis in Palestine and in Israel, they don't invite some kind of white NGO worker to come and tell us about what's happening there. They invite a native of the land and they speak articulately. Why is it when it's happening in Haiti, in the Congo, in Zimbabwe, we cannot hear these people speak for themselves? And so dig a little deeper and find the Haitian voices that are being kept away from your ears. That is your Canada land. If you listen to this show a lot, I think you should be supporting us. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. It starts at five bucks a month and we give you stuff. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand and our website is canadaland.com where one of our other shows, Commons, just wrapped an incredible season about policing in Canada. Why not binge them all if you haven't listened yet? Jeremy Kessler produced this episode. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like this show, please support it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.